Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is so good to worship God together with you this morning. Uh, I'm very excited to be digging into Joshua chapter 2 with you all, but let's pray one more time before we dive in. God, no one here needs to hear from me. We desperately need to hear from you through your word, so would you speak? Would you cause us to leave here this morning more amazed at your grace and mercy towards sinners like us and more in love with Jesus for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Joshua 2 is one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament, the story of Rahab and the spies. There's lots of excitement, there's lots of drama in this story, but what we should see here, above all else, is that our God delights to save sinners. That's the main point. Our God delights to save sinners. So, we want to see that in this passage this morning. The beginning of this story is like watching somebody lean over the edge of a cliff to get a better look at the drop. It gives you that queasy feeling in your stomach, at least me, because I, I don't like heights. I don't, not for me. So that just makes me nervous. It's like something bad is about to happen. And that's what's in this beginning of this story. You look around, it's like something wrong is about to happen. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me again. It says, and Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land." So there are red flags all over in these verses. The first one is that Joshua sends out spies. Now there's nothing wrong necessarily with sending out spies, but this would bring up some bad memories because the people of Israel, the last time they sent out spies to view the promised land, things did not go well. Back in Numbers 13, Moses sent out 12 spies, one of them was Joshua, to scout out the promised land. And they spent 40 days scouting out the land, and they came back with wonderful news about the land. They said, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. So it sounds like great news. This land is full of life. But then they say, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, giants. So 10 of the 12 spies argued that Israel could not take the land because the cities are too strong, the people are too big. We can't do this. And when the people of Israel heard that report, they started to grumble and complain and say, we want to go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die now as we're going to take the promised land? And because they did not trust God, God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died, except the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who were faithful and trusted God. And now here in Joshua 2, he's sending out spies again. So it brings back, it's like, okay, is this going to go well? It also says that Joshua sent the spies out from Shittim. And the only other place 
in the Bible where this is mentioned up to this point is back in Numbers 25. And it's also not a good memory for the people of Israel. Look at Numbers 25, 1 through 5. It says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So last time they were in this place, the people of Israel were committing sexual sin with the Moabites and worshiping their gods. And now we see they're in the same place. Joshua is sending out two spies. And where do they go? They go into the house of Rahab, a Gentile prostitute. So you're just red flags here. Is this going to be the same type of thing again? And on top of that, we're not told who these two spies were. But it is safe to say they are some of the worst spies ever. These were terrible spies. They're not stealthy. They're not secretive. They're like the Mr. Bean or the Three Stooges of spies. They failed on every level. They, they get found out right away. Verses 2 and 3 says that somebody in Jericho, or a few people, found out that they were spies, found out what their mission was, and where they were staying. So just failure on every level. And then they tell the king of Jericho all the details. So I don't know how Joshua picked these spies. I imagined it this way, is that it was like some type of fleece. You know, Joshua's before God and he said, God, if you bring back Sparky and Cooter alive, then we will know that you've given us the land. Probably not how it worked, but I don't know how they were picked. Either way, the spies end up trapped. And look at verses 4 through 7. It says, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where, they, where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone. So think about this scene from Rahab's perspective. She has the king's men come to her door and demand, we know the spies are here, you need to give them to us. And so what would, and she's not giving them up, she's not going to do that, but what would happen if her lie was exposed and she was found to be hiding Israelite spies? She would most certainly be killed. She would be killed. So the stakes are very high, but not only that, she potentially has something to gain here by giving the spies over. If she would give them up, maybe she would be seen more as a hero, not a despised prostitute. Maybe she would be getting in good with the king. She could get some kind of reward, potentially, get herself out of poverty. And on top of that, this is her hometown. This is where her family is. This is where her friends are. And these spies have come to take all of that away. So why not turn them in? You know, you've got a lot to potentially lose and a lot to potentially gain here. But Rahab hides the spies and deceives the king's men, and they leave. So Rahab risks her life. And remember, she hasn't been promised anything by the spies at this point. She's risking her life, and she has not been promised anything here. Now, there's always 
a good question, a lot of questions about the ethics of Rahab's lie. You know, was it right for Rahab to lie here? Was this an acceptable lie? Was it sinful? Is there ever an acceptable lie? There, there's, I, I have some thoughts on this, which I'm happy to share. Also, Conrad taught a Sunday school class last year on Christian ethics and truth-telling. So he's done a lot of work on this subject. I'm happy to push the tough questions to Conrad. But either way, one of the things we need to be careful here is to notice the author doesn't say anything about whether this lie was right or wrong. The author doesn't tell us whether this lie was right or wrong. Even the times where Rahab's mentioned in the New Testament, like Hebrews 11 and James 2, doesn't say whether her lie was wrong. There's no comment on the ethics of her lie or not. It praises her for her faith. This is just reporting what happened. Joshua's reporting, this is what Rahab did. This is what happened. So while this does bring up the topic of lying, I think if we were to ask Joshua, hey, was Rahab's lie right or wrong here? I think he would look back at us and say, you're missing the point. You're completely missing the point. Why does Rahab take such a risk for these two strangers? Because she's convinced that there's a God who is far greater than anything else in this world, including the king of Jericho, including her very life. Rahab here is a picture of what Jesus would later say in Matthew 16, where he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. She is convinced that the God of Israel is greater than anything this world can offer her or take away from her. And she is about to find out that God is more gracious and merciful than she could ever have imagined. As a youth group, we recently finished going through the book of Joshua on Wednesday nights. And one of the things we noticed is that there's not a lot in Joshua written about battles and fighting. There's, there's not much in the book on that. Often Joshua is looked at as a book of fighting, military strategy, tactics, battles to get the promised land. But it, that's not what most of the book talks about. There, there is the taking of Jericho in chapter 6, but even there there's not much talk about you know, military taxes, just God knocked the walls down. And then there's some fighting and battles detailed in chapters 8 through 10, and there's a few mentions here and there, but really that's it. So like four chapters maybe of a 24-chapter book that focus on fighting and battles. So why is that? Why doesn't the book that chronicles how God gave the people the promised land have more fighting in it, or at least detail the fighting and not just summary statements? I mean, why even have this story about Rahab? You don't need this here to show how the people of Israel got the land. You could skip to chapter 6 where they take Jericho. You don't need this backstory to show how Israel got the land. And I think the reason is, is because God wants us to see his character. God wants us to see how gracious and merciful he is. He wants us to see that he is a great savior who saves this lowly Gentile prostitute. Just look at the first thing God says about himself when he describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Is that how you view God? Is that your first thought of God? Or is your first thought, God is really harsh. God is really demanding. 
before any mention of judgment for the people in Canaan or Jericho, there is this whole chapter displaying God's grace and salvation. It's before any mention of judgment. God is eager to lavish his grace and mercy on sinners like you and like me. So Christian, are you weighed down with guilt and shame because of your sin, but you don't dare run to God because he's just going to smash you? Run to him. Run to him. He will not turn you away. He delights to rescue and save sinners. Run toward him, not away from him. Your only hope is toward him. Your only hope is the cross. Run toward him. And when you do, you will be shocked by how abounding God's mercy is and how small your view of God's mercy was before. God brings Rahab, and it's amazing to think about this, God brings Rahab to be the great, 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 however many greats, grandmother of her Savior, Jesus Christ. You talk about abounding mercy and abounding grace. He lifts her up and says, you're going to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. We read it in Matthew 1, where she's listed in Jesus' genealogy. So talk about overflowing grace. So look at the next verses, verses 8 through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. We need to see Rahab's faith just leaping off the page here. She says in verse 9, I know, I know the Lord has given you the land. She knows it. She's not guessing. I know that this is happening. And she knows it because she says that everybody's terrified hearing about what God did beyond in Egypt and at the Red Sea. We are all terrified of what he did to the two kings beyond the Jordan. So Rahab is convinced the God of Israel, he's got over everything. That's what she's confessing in verse 11 when she says, The Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. She's saying, he's God above everything. Whatever pagan gods people are worshiping, he's the one true God. He rules everything. No one greater, no one above him. And then she pleads for kindness. And that word kindness in verse 12 is the same word that God uses to describe himself in Exodus 34, 6 that we read. Look again. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There it is. Steadfast love. She asks, will you and your God show kindness to me? Show steadfast love to me? She's asking better than she even knows. She's asking far better than she knows. Rahab has allied herself with the God of Israel and the people of Israel. Now, how did Rahab hear these stories about what God had done in Egypt and at the Red Sea? Well, word spread. 
You know, something like that happens and word spreads. In fact, God promised that his word would spread and that the people of Canaan would hear this and be in fear. Way back in Exodus 15, it says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And now we see from the mouth of Rahab that all the people in Canaan are in terror, just like God said. You notice at the end of Joshua 2, when the spies bring back their report, look at what they say at the very end. Truly the Lord has given us, given the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Same word in God used back in Genesis 15. So this is confirmation. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. So, beloved, God will always keep his word. He will always keep his word. He always keeps his promises. What he says will happen, will happen. Always. Trust God. Trust his word. One more thing to notice here. Rahab heard these stories about what God had done, and she believed. She hears these stories, and she says, I believe. I, I see what he's I believe in him. So you can imagine, you know, she's going to get water at the well one day or something, and she hears people talking, hey, do you hear what the God of the Hebrew slaves did in Egypt? He's just wrecking the place, and they're going free. Pharaoh's going to let them go. Then a few weeks later, hey, did you hear what the God of the Hebrews did? Parted the Red Sea. They just walked across. And later, hey, did you hear? They crossed the Jordan River. They're coming this way. They defeated the king of the, the kings of the Amorites over there, and they're coming this way. She heard these stories, and she trusted God. That's amazing. Think about this for a second. She trusted God after hearing about God's mighty acts from people who did not believe in God. She's hearing from unbelievers, people who do not believe in God, and she believes. God used unbelievers reporting what God has done to save Rahab. Beloved, if God can use unbelievers to proclaim his mighty deeds and save Rahab, he can use your and my speaking the gospel to save sinners, even though we're not eloquent, and even though we might be scared and shivering as we're saying it. It's not about the power of the messenger. It's about the power of the message. Romans 1.16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes? The gospel. The gospel is the power of God, not the person who shares it. Not about how articulate they are or aren't, not how winsome they are or are not. If God can use unbelievers sharing to save Rahab, he can use people like you and me to spread the gospel. And not only that, but be encouraged as you pray for friends and family who you love but don't know Christ. Pray for them, knowing that God can use even their unbelieving friends speaking the truth to save them. God can do that. God loves to show off his power in situations that seem impossible. This was impossible. Rahab is under the ban. She's called to be destroyed with everybody else. It's impossible. How is salvation going to come here? And God says, I'll show you. God loves to show what is impossible, situations that just seem, this is so messy. How could God possibly use this for good? And God says, I can. And you'll see that only I can. And when it's done, you'll say, God, only you could fix this. Only you could bring redemption here. So trust God. There is 
great hope. He loves to shine his light in dark places. Look at verses 15 through 21. It says, Then she, she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the streets, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if, but if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in her window. So Rahab is promised that they would repay her kindness. I've shown you kindness, and they promised to repay her. And Rahab tells him, go into the hills for three days to not get caught. And remember that, because that's going to be important a little later. And then she lets them down out of her window through this, with this scarlet cord, this rope. That was the only way out. The city gates had been shut at that point. And so this is their way out. They get out through the window down this rope. But there's still something missing. So back in verse 12, Rahab asked for two things. She said, now then, please swear to me, there's the first one, by the Lord, that as I've dealt kindly with you, you'll also deal kindly with my father's house. Here's the second one. And give me a sure sign. So they already swore and gave their word, but now the spies gave her the sign. The spies say, put this rope in your window. This is going to be the sign that we give you. So if you're in this house and this rope is out your window, when we come, you and your father's house will be spared. If you go outside the house, when we come, you're done. You're doomed. You're on your own at that point. But if you stay in, you'll be safe. Now, that plan will sound awfully familiar if, if you know the book of Exodus. It sounds just like the Passover where the people of Israel killed a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house and the angel of death would pass over them. Let me just show you three ways that this is pointing back to the Passover in Exodus. First, Rahab asks for a sign, and the sign they give is a scarlet cord. In Exodus, the same word used for sign is used to talk about the blood on the doorposts of the houses. Look at Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be a sign, same word, for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So both the blood and the cord are called signs, and they're signaling God's protection. Second thing is that Rahab and her family are commanded not to leave the house, because they will not be protected. And back in Exodus 12, Moses gives almost the same command to the people of Israel. Look at Exodus 12:22. None of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So the same instructions are given both sides. Don't leave the house. You'll be safe inside. And then the situation is so similar. If you think about the situation with Rahab, God is going to bring judgment down on Jericho. But he made a way of escape for Rahab and her family that is confirmed by a sign. And in Exodus, God was bringing judgment down on the people in Egypt, but he made a way of escape 
for the families of Israel, which was confirmed by a sign. So Rahab is going through something like a mini Passover, just like the people of Israel went through before her. Now, it, that's not meant to just be like, oh, interesting connection, fun fact there, but it's all meant to be pointing forward to Jesus. That's the point, is this points forward to Jesus. You see, there is a judgment still coming when Christ returns. And we, like Rahab, have a death sentence over us. Just like Rahab was called to be killed with all the other Canaanites, we too have sinned against God, and the wages of sin is death. And so we stand under the ban. We deserve God's wrath. But there is a sign that covers and protects from that judgment. And it's not putting a cord out your window, and it's not putting the blood of a lamb on your doorpost. It's the blood of Jesus that was spilt for sinners like you and like me. Look at Romans 5. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God has provided a way that we would be rescued from the wrath of God and saved. When Jesus comes and John the Baptist sees him in John 1, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus, God the Son, came to earth and he lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place and took all of God's wrath that we deserved for our sin. And he died and he rose again. And for all who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, there is no condemnation, as Howard prayed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's been paid for. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. And we are as safe as the Hebrew people were in Exodus and as safe as Rahab and her family was in this house because we have been covered by the blood of Jesus. The wrath of God will pass over us because it didn't pass over Jesus. Jesus took the wrath of God for us in our place so that we will never taste it. If you're not trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, trust in him today. Trust in him and be saved from the wrath of God that is coming. It's the best news in the world. God has sent his son to save sinners like you and like me. Trust in him and be saved. Look at the last three verses with me. Verses 22 through 24. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over. By the way, that word Passover is the same word used for the Passover. Could have been a different word, but he used that one. It's repeated several times in these first five chapters of Joshua. It is the key word of these first five chapters, Passover. And, and then it says, And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. I just want us to see one more thing here at the end. Twice in this chapter, there is the mention of three days. Rahab told the spies to go into the hills, wait three days, you'll be safe. In verse 16, now in verse 22, it records they remained three days in the hills, and they were safe to return. 
Now, any time a biblical author repeats a detail like that, especially one that's, okay, why are you harping on three days? Like, I got it. It's worth looking into because often there's a bigger point being made. Not always, but often. And the, there is a pattern in the book of Joshua of deliverance on the third day or after three days. In chapter 1, Joshua says to his officers, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over, there it is again, this Jordan to go and, and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And in Joshua 3, 2, it says, And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. So think about what's happening as they're crossing the river. In that moment, when they cross the Jordan River, they are going out of the wilderness, a land of death, into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of life, right? And in Joshua 9:17, it says the people of Gibeon were spared from death on the third day. And I think the reason Joshua notes this third day theme is because he's seen Moses do the exact same thing. See, Joshua was commanded by God to study the scriptures, which at that point would have been Genesis through Deuteronomy. In Joshua 1.8, God says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So Joshua's commanded to dive into the scriptures, day and night, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He's meditating on it. He's thinking about it. That's how he's going to lead. And he's studying God's word, and he sees this emphasis of deliverance on the third day, as the Holy Spirit helps him to see. And I'll just give you, rattle off a few examples of this from Genesis. So, for example, Abraham brought his son Isaac up on the mountain as a sacrifice, and God saved Isaac on the third day day, Genesis 22. On the third day, Pharaoh's servant, the cupbearer, was saved from prison, a place of death, and restored as, Josh, as Joseph prophesied, Genesis 40. On the third day, Joseph frees his brothers from prison and says to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God, Genesis 42. And this pattern just continues to carry on throughout the Old Testament. There's just a few quick ones. Hosea prophesied of resurrection to life on the third day in Hosea 6. David was saved from Saul by Jonathan on the third day in 1 Samuel 20. King Hezekiah was saved from death on the third day and given 15 more years of life in 2 Kings 20. On the third day, Esther went to intercede before the king and saved to rescue her people from destruction in Esther 5. Jonah was rescued from the belly of the fish on the third day. And there are others. And then you get to the New Testament and you read things like this. Look at Luke 24. Then he opened their minds. This is Jesus. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's Old Testament. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Well, where does it say in the Old Testament that Jesus would rise on the third day? Or 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So he's talking about Old Testament there. That he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So where does it say in the Old Testament that Christ would rise on the third day? It's all over. It's everywhere. There's this pattern over and over again of death to life, death to life, death to life. God's rescuing, saving on the third day so that when Jesus comes and he dies and rises again, we say, there it is. 
There it is. He's come. The resurrection and the life has come to save us from sin. All these third day references of salvation from death to life in the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. It's Jesus who said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You and I are going to die one day unless Christ returns first. But just as the kings could not find, the king's men could not find the worst spies in the world. They couldn't find them. So also death cannot destroy us because Jesus has defeated sin and death by rising again on the third day. Death has no power over us. He's defeated it. Has no power. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is, in, is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has delivered us from sin and death. So may God give us the grace to savor and be strengthened by seeing his delight to save sinners. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your grace. God, you have lavished your grace on us. We were in no better place than Rahab when you saved us. We deserved your wrath, and you have given us mercy and grace. You have been so kind to us and saved us. Would you draw to yourself those who do not know you? If there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, would you save them? Would you save our friends and family who do not know you? Would you draw them to yourself? And would you strengthen us as we see your gospel proclaimed in Joshua 2? Would you use it to strengthen and embolden us for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.